I'm Kate Martin-Williams. I'm Fulu. And this is Effing Shakespeare Shorts. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another special edition of Effing Shakespeare's Shorts. Today, we are excited to welcome to the show Alexis Kinlan. Alexis is a journalist working in Alberta. She's published two collections of poetry, fiction and nonfiction, and her new novel is out with Now or Never Publishing called Mad Cow. I'm anxious to hear about the book, but first of all, just tell us how things are going up there for you right now. Okay, so I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, which is Canada. Um, it's, <laughs> just to let people know. Canada, where's that? Yeah. So we're actually really far north. I think we're like the one of the most northern capital cities. So I think maybe 53rd parallel or something. So pretty far north. And so my city is about a million people. And so Calgary, which is the city to the south, has had more COVID cases than we have had. But, you know, we've just been sheltering in place. And I've been doing a lot of work from home because I'm an agricultural reporter. And some people know and some people don't. But agriculture is very busy right now. Mm. And, And why is that? Well, this is a problem that's happening in both Canada and the United States, so I'll talk a little bit about this one. Okay. So right now, some of the slaughterhouses operating for cattle are not operating to capacity, so there's a backlog of animals Mm -hmm. that are ready to go, and just there's a lack of ability to process them. So this can mean, like right now in Canada, a cow that's ready to go is losing about $700 per cow. Wow. Wow. pretty dire situation and most people aren't kind of aware of what's happening so no because it's getting overshadowed by all the other stuff right yeah exactly and a lot of people who don't work in agriculture I mean before I became an agricultural reporter I was one of those people too so I just didn't really know what goes into putting food on the shelves in the grocery store and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of behind the scenes work that happens Mm -hmm. and I think it's kind of fascinating how similar it is to the oil crisis yeah yeah same storage issues and similarly we put gas in our cars but don't think a lot about all of the processes that happen before it gets there sure well and that's some of the things that alberta is sometimes called texas of the north because there Mm -hmm. are a lot of similarities between the two regions like we have our economy has a lot of oil we have a lot of cattle you know, mm-hmm. so they are kind of similar in some ways. And there's a lot, I think, in Calgary, which is, again, like I said, the city to the south, there's a large amount of Americans that work and do business in there on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Wow. How did you find yourself in agricultural reporting or how did you get there? Well, so I my first degree is in international studies. And then I did a journalism degree because I wanted to write. So I was like, well, I know that I really want to be a writer. So I went to journalism school, and I happened to really love journalism. And then every job I had, they wanted me to do some agricultural reporting. So I started doing freelancing, and I did some overseas development work, and I did some work in smaller communities in Alberta. And then I ended up with the job I have now, because I could move to a bigger center, work from home, Mm -hmm. and do agricultural journalism. And the really interesting thing is that there's not that many people who do it, and it's very specialized, so there's a lot of demand for people who can write about it. Like, there are a lot of opportunities, so that's been really cool. 
But hmm. if you'd asked me like 20 years ago if I would have specialized in this, I never would have could have imagined. Yeah, yeah. How cool is that? And then one of my questions was the age-old question about balancing your creative life with a freelancer life. And I was wondering about the process from ending up an agricultural reporter and then writing this book that has just come out, Madcap. Yeah, so what has worked for me is I, like I said, I've worked from home for 12 years. And so I did a lot of different, I have a staff job, like, so I am a staff writer at a newspaper called Alberta Farmer. Mm-hmm. And I do do freelance pieces and fiction pieces and, and poetry pieces. And the way I wrote Mad Cow, so it really makes sense that Mad Cow is based on my life as an agricultural reporter and sort of learned about Mad Cow, or as we call it in the industry, BSE, which stands for bovine, spongiform, and soft velocity. Mm-hmm. But we call it BSE. Because that period was in about 2003 and really devastated the Canadian cattle industry. And so I learned about that and I started talking to farmers and just learning about it. And then I started researching that time period. And then so the way I wrote the book is pretty much I would sit down and do about 500 or 1,000 words every day before I would start my work. And then I would just do my work for the day and be done. And that's how I kind of worked through it that way. But your research then would have been completely working for your creative mind as well at the same time, right? Yeah, well, I sometimes would be out at agricultural events and I just talked to farmers a lot about the time period and like what they went through. Like I really tried to focus my work life on beef cattle and learning more about beef cattle so I could really have those details and that kind of stuff in the book. But I also knew that I didn't want to focus on like the politics of the situation and stuff. Like I really wanted to focus on a family. Well, can we hear a little bit from from the book? Sure. I'm going to read one section. So the book is set in rural Alberta in a nameless town. So I was really interested in exploring the lives of the women in the book. So it's told from two perspectives. One character is named Donna and she's a mother in her 40s. So this is told from her perspective. She got off work early because of the grain elevator. Anita, the owner of Memorable Moments, thought about keeping the store open so she could make money off the people coming downtown to watch the grain elevator fall at the end of the street. I feel sick thinking about it, Anita said. But hey, the store could use the business. We have to keep up our sales so that we're top of mind when Walmart comes. Anita Babchuk had lived in town all her life and was now in her 50s. Sometimes Donna wondered how she could stand it, living her entire life in one place. Didn't Anita ever wonder what other places were like? She and her husband Kelly used to run the video store in town too, but they sold it when Kelly got into inventing. He started out making those wooden silhouettes of cowboys and wagon wheels that people put in front of their homes. His cutouts were immensely popular, so Kelly started traveling to farm trade shows and rodeos. He had also invented some kind of watering system for cattle to drink out of when it got cold. The Babchucks were in the money now. Donna didn't know how someone could be as happy as Anita. No one in town ever said anything bad about her. She was the best with customers and could always help anyone find the right card for any occasion. The card she sent the Clausens after the accident still sat on the mantel in Donna and Gord's house. 
even though many of the other cards had been thrown out. Anita's card was beautiful, purple, pink, and orange, just like a prairie sunset. On the top of the card, a couple wearing cowboy hats stood on a ledge, looking out into a valley. The inside of the card said, Together we can get through the roughest of times. Wishing you and your family strength and courage during this difficult period. Anita eventually decided town pride was worth more than commerce, and she announced they would close the store early. I can't bear to watch the elevator fall, Anita said as they locked up for the night. I'm going to go home, sit on my back porch, and have a glass of wine. When I wake up in the morning, the town will be different. Marianne knocked on the window of the store. Donna waved at her. Go ahead, Anita said. I'll finish up. Marianne was one of Donna's oldest friends in town. She was a few years older, but moved to town a few years after Donna did. Clay and Marianne's daughter, Naomi, had been in the same swim class at the town pool when they were little. Marianne grew up in Red Deer and met her ex-husband, John, at Red Deer College before he went to med school. She had worked as an elementary school teacher, but didn't like it, so she turned to writing. She was now a successful romance author and was known for a series of steamy cowboy romance books that took place in Texas. She spent most of her days in the purple writing studio at the back of her house, staring at a computer screen, her Boston Terrier Henry snoring at her feet. Naomi was the same age as Clay and lived in Vancouver. I didn't want to have sex with John for a long time because I thought he was cheating, Marianne confessed late one night when she and Donna had had a few too many wine coolers on her back porch. We were staying together because of Naomi. But then one night, he rented the Magnificent Seven, and I don't know, there was just something about Yul Brynner and a cowboy hat that did it for me. Marianne's other daughter, Bryn, was born nine months after the Magnificent Seven incident. John started sleeping with the receptionist at his clinic when Bryn was five. John and Marianne split up, and he moved to Ottawa. Marianne stayed in town because she didn't want to take Bryn out of school, and she loved her sprawling bungalow, which she painted purple after the divorce. Donna read all of Marianne's books. They were steamy and delicious, focusing on how good a man could look in a Stetson, hoisting himself onto a beautiful, well-made horse. It was enough to make any woman need a cold drink. Marianne wrote love stories between city girls and ranchers. One time, Donna asked Marianne why she didn't set any of her books in Alberta. Books set in Alberta or Saskatchewan don't sell, Marianne said, taking a sip of wine. Have you ever noticed that none of the cows or horses ever shit in any of my books? These cowboys live in shitless worlds. It's all about the fantasy. Donna understood this better than anybody. She had always had a thing for cowboys. She loved all the old westerns, just like everyone else in the Clausen family. Al had called them dusters. He didn't have to teach Donna about westerns when she moved to the farm. She'd known them all already. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Gorgeous red-haired Robin Redford and handsome Paul Newman in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. John Travolta as the urban cowboy. Before she moved to the farm, she'd been obsessed with Dallas and Dolly Parton and the fancy shining sequin dresses Dolly wore, especially when she was singing with Kenny. Islands in the Stream, How Could They Be Wrong? It was still one of Donna's favorite songs. Donna went outside to meet Marianne. Do you need to eat anything, Marianne said? Did you have supper? I'm good, Donna said. She was a bit peckish, but she hadn't felt like eating too much. Every time she sat down to eat, all she could think about was poor Abby. Abby, who still had a great figure in her 60s, who had loved a good home-cooked meal. She always insisted on having everyone sit down to eat at the table. Her tablecloths were pressed, and the knives on the table settings faced inward. When they had holiday dinners at Al and Albie's, 
Abby used the good china. I love it. I think now's a really good time to get lost in, in novels. And we've had a lot of poets on the shorts editions, huh, Fu? Just, yeah. So it's been good to good to speak with a novelist. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's great. And I, I'm happy to be introduced to your work. Thank you. I think there's something about the Western, too, right now. I've just been talking to folks who have been looking for books to get lost in. And one of my good friends is a person with whom I've had a book club for several ongoing years, and he just returned to Lonesome Dove. And this is like a guy who reads everything that comes out, you know, right now and all the it books and, and he's very into experimental literature and for him to return <laughs> to the, to the land of the West and get lost in that kind of world is signifying something I think right now. So I appreciate you coming on the show to talk about your book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So the second POV you have, is that going to be Donna's daughter? Yeah, that's Donna's daughter. So she starts off the book. She's 14 years old and her name is Allison. So I alternate in chapters between Allison and Donna. Fantastic. One thing I was really interested in in exploring this book was people who grow up in rural areas and just don't really fit in or don't want to be there. So Mm -hmm. Allison has a really hard time fitting in with um, kind of the rural community. And her mother, Donna, just basically feels like a failed ranch wife. So I really wanted to get that kind of outsider feeling. And also just because myself, like I'm kind of in some ways an outsider. I do a lot of agricultural reporting, but I grew up in a small urban setting and I am an urban person. So I kind of wanted to have that natural tension there, I guess. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a universal theme, right? Like what I love about this show is meeting people from all over the place who manage to tell stories that make the world a little bit smaller and more connected. And I think that your story sounds like one of those. Thank you. Another goal in creating the book was to write about Western Canada in a way that uses Western Canadian slang, but could still be like a story that would resonate before. And just even as I was reading that chapter, I was like, there's probably people in rural states or in urban centers who still would like to learn about some of the things that happen in Western Canada or, you know, could identify with the feelings in the book. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It sounds, it sounded a lot like some East Texas places I know. So I I get that. Can you tell our listeners where they can find Mad Cow and other examples of your work? The best way for listeners to get Mad Cow is I know you can get e-copies on on Amazon. Or I think a friend of mine in Rhode Island just ordered from his local independent bookstore. Or you could always try Now or Never Publishing is is another good way to just order directly from the publisher. So those would be a good ways to get the novel. And I think the same, I have two books of poetry. Second collection is called 13 and the first one is called She Dreams in Red. And I think your local independent would probably be able to get any of those books. So Absolutely. Shout out to all the indies out there who could use your patronage at this time. We're so grateful for your time today, Alexis, and getting to know you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really just a pleasure to talk about this book. As one of my friends said, you know, there's lots of stuff happening in the in the world. It's not a great time to be a newly published author, but I mean, it doesn't really matter compared to the, the normal things, but it's still nice to be able to talk about your book when, you know, it's a story that you want to share with the world. For sure. 
Yeah. We're happy to, happy to have you on. Thank you so much, Alexis. Take care. You too. Effing Shakespeare Shorts is a production of Bloomsday Media, hosted by Kate Markin-Williams and Jessica Cole, and me, Fu Lu. Production assistance by Lily Wolfmeyer.